0: What is Bitcoin to me? Bitcoin is the first currency that I truly believe is uncensurable in a way that it does not impede our ability to express to the world what we value. And it's a slightly different take on money, but I, I, I truly believe Bitcoin can bring us back to our authentic selves because it allows us to direct our capital where we see fit. Welcome to another episode of The Block
1: Reward. Our guest today is Seb Bunny. Seb is a Bitcoin educator and the co-founder of a really amazing Bitcoin education website called Looking Glass. And uh, we're going to spend some time later on in the show talking about Looking Glass. But uh, early on, Seb's thoughts around the way that broken money impacts us all in our daily lives and the effects that it has on society. Seb is a really interesting thinker and sort of a Bitcoin philosopher and just a genuinely uh, interesting person to listen to. So I hope you enjoy. And here we go. Welcome to episode five of the Block Reward podcast. Our guest today is Seb Bunny. Very excited to have you, Seb.
0: Welcome. Ah, I really appreciate it, Scott. We, for those obviously that don't know, Scott and I met probably like a month and a half ago at this little Bitcoin meetup and there's probably 200 people there and we had an awesome conversation and it's always nice to meet like-minded individuals, so I appreciate you having me on. You know,
1: and we've talked about this off the line, but it, it is an amazing thing about Bitcoin how it creates such a cool common ground. So when you when you've met other people, and then since then I've been reviewing some of your other you know literature and podcast appearances, and it's like, yeah, this person. And I agree on a lot of stuff, and so yeah, I'm excited for you to share some of your message today. Ah,
0: I'm ready when you are.
1: Cool. We're starting something a little bit different on this episode. I've had some time away from the mic uh, to reflect on uh, how to continually try to improve, and I want to start something today uh, by that I'm intending to do every episode. And I'm going to first start this conversation by asking you,
0: "What is Bitcoin?" That's such a big question. I would say. You know what, if, I, if I'm to simplify it down, I would answer the thing of what is money first because then it will make more sense to answering what is Bitcoin. But for me, I find money, like language, is just a medium of expression. It's a way that we express to the world what it is that we value. And the challenge with our money that we use today, like whether it's the Canadian dollar here in Canada or the US dollar or whatever other fiat currency you use, is it impedes our ability to express what we want into the world. And so, for instance, capital controls, inflation, and whatnot, they all inhibit our ability to show the world who we truly are and be our authentic selves. And so when I say, what is Bitcoin to me? Bitcoin is the first currency that I truly believe is uncensorable in a way that it does not impede our ability to express to the world what we value. And it's a slightly different take on money, but I I, I truly believe Bitcoin can bring us back to our authentic selves because it allows us to direct our capital where we see fit. And no one can stop us from doing that, whether it's through inflation and stealing our purchasing power, or well, whether it's through capital controls or whether it's through banking restrictions impeding our ability to kind of direct capital where we want to. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I have seen this idea before in different places, kind of uh, described as, you know, if, if, if money is meant to be, you know, the basis for money is a transaction and a transaction is kind of like an exchange of information. And so if the medium, if the, uh, the way that we're using to communicate has some fuzziness or some noise in the signal, it's, it's going to screw up the, the exchange of information, right? And uh, in the case of money, it's prices. And that then becomes kind of the foundation for a lot of things not working correctly, because a lot of what society is, is transactions.
0: Mm-hmm. 100%. And you know what, it's a perfect example of this, which I like to kind of refer back to, is like If you go to a grocery store and you see two people transacting, on one aisle, you have someone purchasing, let's say, microwave dinners and cigarettes and candy. And then on the other aisle, you have someone purchasing grass-fed beef and organic vegetables. Like You can immediately see what it is that they value just by their, purchase, their ability to purchase what it is that they desire. They're expressing into the world what they value. And so an example of us kind of being impeded would be, let's take the trucker rally that happened kind of during the pandemic here in Canada people started to donate to something they believe. They believe in free speech. They believe that truckers should have a right to move across the border freely. So they started to voice that opinion through donating their money. And then all of a sudden, Trudeau came heavy-handedness and he came and shut that down and basically froze anyone's bank accounts who donated above a certain amount. And so what you're saying right there is someone has a belief of how they want to express themselves and someone else is impeding that ability. And sometimes this may be a little... Well, tie it back to saying that I also think is a little interesting, and then I'll stop rambling. But when it comes to, say, emotions and being able to express ourselves emotionally, we know that if we are impeded in our ability to express ourselves emotionally, it can lead to a whole host of illnesses, whether it is cancer, whether it's ADHD and whatnot. These have all been linked back, and there's many medical documents and, and scientific studies linking them back to illness because we're limited in our ability to express ourselves emotionally. And I would say the issues we face in society today stem from the fact that we are limited in ourselves uh, monetarily. Because we are limited in our ability to express ourselves monetarily, we have all these byproducts in society. And so I would argue the social unrest that we're seeing, uh, the wealth inequality that we're seeing, the rising cost of living that we're seeing, like these are the byproducts of when people cannot express themselves monetarily.
1: Yeah, that is a really huge and very interesting topic. I think that, um, and I've had this come up in a few ways in different conversations, the idea of, how many ways broken money can manifest itself, like what are the symptoms of broken money? And it's a great clip. actually, I just saw yesterday I was we're recording this. It's kind of the middle of October, and the situation in Israel is really looking pretty grim or very uh charged and Safidin, who is a famous Bitcoiner, Safdin Moose, Dr. Safdinmoss, I should say, is a Palestinian, and he was just talking about how the real origins of the real origins of that situation, going back to the very beginning, had to do with the fact that the Bank of England had gotten itself away from the gold standard, which sort of gave them the, the printing power required in the first place to basically have the, the sort of the military and international leeway that they needed to do the the, the statesmanship that created the uh, current political lines in that part of the world, and it, it just got me thinking, like. Man, this problem with busted money, for the most part, you know, we we, people notice it right now because it's getting more urgent. The purchasing power is really diminishing and your money's going shorter and shorter every day. But the reality of the world we live in, in so many ways, is really rooted in a long history of broken money that we just never really paid attention to, probably most of us until like two or three years ago.
0: When war is such a fascinating example of kind of the byproduct of broken money because naturally I don't think we're ever going to stop war and conflict. I think war and conflict are a natural product of clashing societies with different opinions. But when we have fiat currency, when the government controls the money and can simply print at will, it's fascinating to watch the effects of that because all of a sudden the government doesn't actually need support from the populace. So Simply through printing money, simply through devaluing the currency, it can fund war. And so it drags wars out so much longer. And so I know in um, Saifuddin's book, The Bitcoin Standard, he talks about how the 21st century has been some of the highest death rates through war throughout history. We tend to think that a lot of these deaths have been previously with the tribes warring and whatnot. But actually, in those times, if you were a small tribe and you're fighting another tribe and you do not have the resources to continue, you either give up or uh, you give up or you give in to the other tribe. And I think what's interesting now is that. Even when a country is failing, even when a country is falling short and knows they cannot win, they can continue to funnel capital and continue to fuel the war. And so we have these wars that just last and last and last with a ton of deaths, a ton of uh, negative consequences. And it's all fueled by fiat currency because it allows people in charge to be able to direct capital where they see fit, regardless of what the populace believes. And tying it back to Bitcoin, what I think is so fascinating is that. If we were to, let's say, hypothetically be on a Bitcoin standard where globally we used Bitcoin as our local currency, what would happen is all of a sudden, those in control of the purchasing power can ultimately govern the direction of the nation. And so if the government decides, hey, we want to go to war, if it doesn't have support from the populace, if people stop directing tax dollars towards the government, the government can no longer fund war and it has to back down. So all of a sudden, it incentivizes productive behavior. So I think if we were to move towards a Bitcoin standard... I would be willing to bet that the loss during war, the destruction during war would be minimized significantly.
1: Mm -hmm. And a couple of those things, just for listeners to really, you know, simplify as to why. One, uh, because Bitcoin can't be confiscated. There are some people who imagine sort of a more voluntary situation where if the government can't go in and take your money, they do sort of have to return it in some way to asking for it. And you know, yeah, it's, all, you're always gonna have to pay taxes, but it's the mechanism to for enforce the collection of that money that might be flipped on its head a little bit. And yeah, the sort of uh, military industrial complex and the, the business of war, you know, there are two big aspects of forever war, right? And one is it's immensely profitable. And so the military industry and, and government have become closely merged. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of fiat profit happening. I think it's a great business as a result of always being able to uh, find another war to fight. But as you mentioned too, it it also sort of doubly creates that you know inflation is good for governments because it devalues the the amount of money that they have already borrowed. The more money that they can create, it sort of dilutes and diminishes the amount you can borrow. And this is when you control the the money printer when you're when you're at the one who's allowed to make money, then you sort of, uh, you have the ability to dilute your own debt. And so wars also do that, which is a a sort of double benefit to them. And it's, it's extra bad for us because for everybody who is just trying to live in a country and survive day to day, it is this money that drifts away overseas elsewhere that uh, we're sort of out out of sight, out of mind, but it it does come back to us in the form of prices going up.
0: I think what's also really interesting to add on to kind of exactly what you just said is when we think about inflation and that devaluation of currency, it's not that this devaluation, like let's say our purchasing power loses 20%. That 20% is now in the hands of government. By simply expanding the monetary supply, they now gain access to our purchasing power. And so taking it back to money as a medium of expression What I think is so fascinating is that when our ability to express ourselves monetarily is impeded, and inflation, what's happening through this is that the government is basically, they are able to use our purchasing power to direct where they see fit. And I think that this is when we find ourselves in in scary situations, is that people in power, although they may believe they are right, Hitler believed he was right, we can find ourselves in these dark holes when they feel as if they can direct the the purchasing power of the, the populace. Whereas exactly to your point, when it comes to Bitcoin, for the first time in history, we have a decentralized currency that no one person can govern and control. They cannot expand it even if they wanted to. And what I also think is fascinating, this is, I would argue, one of the coolest, coolest parts of Bitcoin, is that it dematerializes borders. And what I mean by that sounds kind of scary, but what I mean by that is every asset that we have ever owned, whether it is real estate, whether it is stocks and equities, whether it is bonds, they're all jurisdictionally located. So a house, it's physically located. It's located in the country you're living in. Uh, bonds and stocks, they're they're located in a centralized entity who is located in a country. What that means is, if the government wants to crack down and freeze your assets, they can do. When it comes to Bitcoin, for the first time, we're, we're able to move assets cross borders. And it's 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 an asset that's stored in the internet. It's an asset that only needs an internet connection to move. It doesn't need a jurisdiction. And so what that means is that if you are someone who's living in the Middle East and all of a sudden your country is under war. You can't move your house. If you owned any stocks in a, in a uh, trading platform, you can't move those stocks. You can't move cash in a bank account. It's, you can't move the majority of assets out there. But what you can move is Bitcoin. And what is really cool is you could walk across that border naked with 12 words in your head through your seed phrase, and you could store that wealth in your head. And that is profound. So when I say it dematerializes borders, it allows capital to flow to countries that offer people uh, of like-minded... Uh, well, it allows basically... Values to pool in certain areas so you can find like minded individuals, which we've never had before. People are kind of locked into their country based upon where their wealth is and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Funny sort of personal story about this. I was in LA last week for a Bitcoin conference, and the border guard, the customs guy, is like, I, t- I told him what I was doing. I don't know if that's a mistake or not. I'm, but uh, when I said I was going to Bitcoin conference, he's like, Are you bringing any Bitcoin with you? And I'm like, In my head, I'm like, I don't even know how to answer that because. I mean, technically Bitcoin don't even exist, but I, I don't really want to get into that with the customs guy who all of a sudden I'm getting a cavity search for my USB stick. That yeah, it, it does have some really interesting ramifications for, you know, e- even creating a hostile environment for Bitcoin potentially in the future. Like one of the things that you hear a lot from people who really haven't studied Bitcoin much is, you know, governments are going to ban it. And even that that basic concept kind of agrees. The only thing governments around the world have unanimously agreed on is that nobody's allowed to go to Antarctica. Other than that, there is nothing that governments agree on, not all of them. And so if there are countries in the world that are loose with Bitcoin, countries that want to get really firm with it are going to risk. All of that capital simply fleeing, like you said, uh, I mean, because it it, it is borderless, it's going to make the enforcement, traditional enforcement of financial regulations,
0: I don't say difficult, but they're just going to have to evolve and change. Totally. I think there's no way to effectively control or govern Bitcoin. And so the only thing that has to change is the behavior of politicians. So rather than them controlling, they now have to approach it from the perspective of, well, how can I offer value so the capital flows towards me? And so we're seeing that in, say, El Salvador. We're starting to see countries that have recognized that if they open up their doors to Bitcoin, then they're going to see capital flood in because they want to create an environment that brings in these investors, that brings in these people that are pro-free speech, that are pro-rules uh, over rulers. And so it's really fascinating to just see this playing out in real time as we, as we speak.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about what you're talking about is really a, a change to, to incentives. And so I think that just for a quick primer, before I ask you this question in, the, in a fiat money world, in an infinite money world, really the incentive, uh, structure is one of, if there's, if there's a never ending amount of money, you need to get as much of it as you can. Cause you know, that on some level, it's always going to become worth less and less. And the best thing you can do is get as much of as you can to buy other stuff. And so we see in the fiat world prices of other things going up, Uh, as the amount of what your government money will buy goes down and in a finite money world in a bitcoin money world this means that uh you really want to be thinking about how you're going to collect bitcoin and because there's that's the one thing that there's only so much of and it causes a rewiring of basically the rewards and incentives of how businesses and governments will want to work. And I've seen you, you talk about this a lot. What, what do you think hard money can mean for the way things work changing?
0: So the first thing I would say, Bitcoin is talk a lot about this. And so for people that are kind of unfamiliar with this, I'll kind of break it down simply to start because it'll make more sense. And so Bitcoin has talked about this thing called high time preference. And so basically there's on the spectrum of low time preference to high time preference, what this basically means is if you have a low time preference, you are trying to service your immediate needs. You're not looking into the future. If you have a, a high time preference, wait, I've got those mixed up. They always always confuse me. They're always confusing. Sorry, high time preference is when you're trying to service immediate needs. You're always trying to meet whatever's kind of, in this moment, you're very reactionary. Whereas low time preference is that you're willing to look to the future. You're willing to build security and stability. And so even though small short-term uh, small short-term environmental changes may happen that incentivize you to do certain behavior. You would rather look to the future because you believe it to be more prosperous than being reactionary in this moment. And so when money is worth less from one day to the next, such as in a fiat system, where our purchasing power is declining, we're not incentivized to save. Instead, we're incentivized to consume. That is because naturally, why save if my money today purchases more than it will purchase tomorrow? And so that naturally pushes us towards this high time preference thinking. We're always trying to just be reactionary and consume in this moment. And the flip side is with something like Bitcoin. When you have a currency with a finite amount of units, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, all of a sudden, as technology advances, as the world's productivity grows, our purchasing power starts to increase. So now, instead of being incentivized to consume, if our purchasing power is worth more from one day to the next, we're actually incentivized to save. So now we've shifted rather than from High time preference, focusing on immediate needs. We're now thinking about long-term. We're thinking about stability. We're thinking about trying to build a better world for ourselves and those around us. And so this is fascinating because it changes behavior on the individual level. It changes on the corporate level. It changes on the nation state level. And so I'll give you an example. If you think about, um, if you are a government and the government today can run deficits. And when I say a deficit, they're basically spending more money than they're making because they can simply fund those deficits through either taking on debt or printing more currency units. The problem with that is it doesn't incentivize creating value. It doesn't incentivize actually adding value to society and looking to the future and building like stability and security. Instead, it incentivizes politicians to do what they feel is in their best interest in this moment. And so we see that happening throughout society. And a perfect example would even be, say, the medical system. We have a medical system that's become so massively encumbered and so inefficient, and they're simply trying to use pharmaceuticals to push things off and uh, treat symptoms, we're never looking at the route. Whereas if you were a government with, let's say, limited purchasing power, because naturally the only way to raise capital was through taxation, and you had to have the populace on board, all of a sudden, if you want to have a healthy population and you didn't have enough money to cover all of these outgoings, instead of looking at trying to treat the symptom, you now have to flip that on its head. And you actually have to look, okay, what's the root cause of this? How can we actually use our capital efficiently to create a healthy society? And so now you start to look at treating the root cause rather than treating the symptom. And so it, I find this fascinating because it changes even the way politicians look at the world because all of a sudden they're incentivized to think long term because that's how they're going to add value. They're not going to add value by simply printing more money and trying to appeal to our reactionary nature of the fiat world. Right.
1: So if you can make an infinite amount of money, then in the back of your mind, there's basically, you just know that you can always make more money. And so so there is no incentive to maximize your return on every dollar you have Or and because you don't need to ask for it. And this is getting back to the war thing. Basically, we vote for our governments and then if they decide they want to go to war, they go to war. So our say in it is very little. We may be in favor of this. We may be against it. We all pay for it indirectly when they create more money to pay for it. And so, yeah, you did a really great job speaking to you. I love this. uh, So I guess the idea is it starts there with the money printer. And if the government doesn't have that incentive, the people don't really have much, like we don't have a chance, right? Because we're all subjects of the rules of where we live. And when we all live in this infinite money society, it, it basically, it becomes the foundation for getting back to the very sort of the conversation. It's, it's the foundation for how we interact with each other.
0: Yeah. And what I also think is so cool is when you remove the money printer, like, to be honest, I think one of the, the biggest things I'm for is removing money from state because by removing money from state, even though I think I'm pushing Bitcoin, if If Bitcoin fails for whatever reason, I'm still always going to push remove money from state. And the reason why is because ultimately, if you remove money from state, it forces the state to become a responsible entity. At the moment, they do not have to be a fiscally responsible entity. And so that also trickles down to let's say, look at 2008 or the pandemic. The moment we start to go into times of trouble and companies start to go under, the government steps in because we have so much debt underpinning society. If any major company were to go under, it could pull the whole of the economy down. And so naturally, the government starts to step in, and it starts to bail out all these companies. What does that tell the companies? If they know that they can act fiscally irresponsible, they can be take risky measures to try and make more money, because ultimately, if their failure has the potential to bring down the economy, they're going to get bailed out. What does that tell them? It tells them that they can continue doing what it is that they're doing. They can continue to take more risks. And so you see, like, in a lot of these big hedge funds, in a lot of these Big banks, you see bonuses being paid out in years when the banks have lost billions of dollars of customers' funds. Like that's mind blowing to me. Whereas in an economy where the government cannot step in financially unless it is saved up to do so, all of a sudden you are now incentivizing corporations because those corporations now no longer have a buyer of last resort. They no longer have someone who could step in when they are financially troubled. So it incentivizes them to be fiscally responsible. So, for instance, like going into the pandemic, they would have to save up and have cash reserves so that in the event that something would happen where they had to shut doors, they were still able to operate. And so I think it creates a society that is a lot more stable because people are thinking ahead. They're not thinking about how can I maximize my extraction of capital from society today?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of seeing that right now play out in Canada with real estate prices because I think the prevailing thought is that the Canadian government would never really, one, we have this uh, CMHC mortgage insurance, which wouldn't be enough to cover a a catastrophic widespread failure of um, lending. But the general feeling, I think, among people is that the Canadian government would never let one of the big banks fail. So as a result, you have banks uh, presumably taking on loans that they probably shouldn't. And it's that cascading effect that creates an environment where asset prices can continually rise probably much higher than they should and this is it all comes back to broken incentives like this is they, these things are entirely connected to each other it starts with government uh, fiscal responsibility and then it sort of just cascades out into like you said the the way
0: the way businesses can approach risk and profitability you also see it again in, in regulation because then when the government is bailing out all these corporations, then all these corporations are starting to engage in risky behavior. And then so risky behavior, well, then the government has to step in and regulate. So then you get all this regulation and then people trying to skirt around regulation. You get this system with all of these byproducts that are just it's playing whack-a-mole in a society that is basically just trying to get what it can because it's just simply trying to survive. And I just think when you think about Bitcoin, when you think about a currency that has a finite amount of, uh, of units, which basically means our purchasing power will increase over time rather than decrease, it shifts. It turns everything on its head. Because even if you think about it from the individual and the bottom rung of society, all of a sudden, rather than having to work more as the cost of living is increasing, the cost of living is declining. So that means that as time goes by, they're able to spend more time with their family. They're able to spend more time focusing on themselves so they can find their authentic self. And so I think on so many levels, Bitcoin has the potential to makes such a profound impact. And so to be honest, like as you kind of mentioned, like these are the byproducts of broken money. I tend to think about this kind of one little phrase, which is everything is downstream of money. When you start to play with the money, the effects are widespread. And so I think when we look at the environmental destruction we have because of consumerism, when we look at the breakdown of the parent-child bond because parents have to work more because their money is worth less, when we look at the breakdown of business practices, when we look at the breakdown of politics, All of these things, I truly believe, stem from a broken monetary system. A lot of people just don't connect those dots between those two things.
1: 100%. You know, I think like a great example of this, to put it into perspective, are things like appliances. So in the 50s, you would buy a refrigerator that was meant to last you like 20 or 50 years. And refrigerators now last like two, five years, whatever, maybe 10. And this is time preference and broken incentives playing out in the real world. Because in the infinite money world, you have a you have a constant need to make more money, and so it's uh, you're you need to create products that are going to need to be replaced, and and then if you get really smart about it, you're going to create products that need to be replaced even more and more frequently. And so what we're living in right now, I is almost like the ultimate the climax of high time preference society. And I always look at things like TikTok. It, to me, it's so funny because social media has evolved from kind of like long form. Say we started with a YouTube and then Instagram started doing videos and the videos were like, you know, a minute, two minutes. And then it got down to like 10 seconds. And it's like, it's just such a good microcosm of how our attention spans are being careened into this as small of a, a window as possible. And so, yeah, I I love hearing you talk about this concept of what low time preference can do for community and like what it could mean for for so many things. Because time preference to me is the essence of the rat race.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think when you you know what I would I would say that like one of the other things people don't necessarily recognize is that when our money is worth less, society is consuming more and more and more of our time because naturally we have to work more. So we go from in Canada, for instance, in 1970. There was one, I think it was one million, I'm trying to remember, one million single earner, sorry, dual earner families. Now we're at like two or three million dual earner families. What that means is that we used to be able to survive on one parent going out and being able to support the family. That is no longer the case. We, both parents have to go to work. And not only that, many times parents have to have two jobs to be able to survive. And that's because it's becoming more and more and more expensive to live. And so I think that what's fascinating is that when you think about how it starts to weave its impact throughout society, it's just it's, it's impacting every single aspect. And so it's meaning that we don't have the time to even sit back and look at the news and disseminate information by ourselves. We don't have the time to go and read, to do our own research, because our time is being consumed by work, by other, uh, by other endeavors that require our attention. And so people no longer are thinking for themselves because their time's being consumed. And so the moment we get home after our 10, 11-hour day, we want to just watch Netflix and just chill. And we're starting to see the effects of this because you can see pervasive narratives that are not rooted in truth spread throughout society because people are no longer critical thinking. And I think that in a society where our purchasing power is declining, sorry, in a society where our purchasing power is increasing over time in a, say, a Bitcoin world, what ends up happening is given that over time we actually have more time rather than less, we can actually think more critically about the information we're consuming. And if we can think more critically about the information we're consuming, we're actually incentivizing truth-telling. We're not incentivizing people to spin narratives like we are today and attention-grabbing headlines and whatnot. Yeah, it's
1: like the money's so broken, people don't even have time to think how broken the money is. Yeah. (laughs) Like like, uh, some of these, I I mean, if anybody who's listening to this is taking the time, that's great. But it's such a funny thing because, you know, so many Bitcoin conversations just really are intended to help people start to pause for a second. And, and, and that's exactly what this conversation is, right? It's like broken money is impacting everybody at just about all times of the day. It's the reason why you have to work longer and harder. It's the reason why your, your bills are piling up. It's the reason why it's the reason why it's the reason why it's the reason why. And you know so your thing about the number of dual-income families that's grown up, that's blown up over the last fifty years. The divorce rate—I bet you—if you, you charted along the same time frame, has also gone up. And it, obviously, that's not the only factor, but it, that's another example of how broken money is negatively impacting
0: society because money. Totally. And you know what's fascinating is, so I am—I'm one year into a three-year. Somatic therapy course. And so, somatic therapy is kind of looking at how trauma impacts us and how to process trauma. And there's a lady called Kathy Kane, who is a very famous somatic therapist, and she's dived into the effects of trauma and stress on, say, the fetus and on kind of the womb as like a child is kind of um, going through its developmental phases. And what is so interesting is it talks about how if our environment is naturally stressful, then the stress hormones that the mother feels get passed on to the child during its developmental years. It's like crucial developmental or year inside the mother's womb. And when that child is born, they have significantly higher wet rates of allergies. They have significantly higher rates of illness. They have a heightened nervous system where they can be in fight, flight, or freeze much easier, which leads to many adverse effects. Now, what is really interesting is you could say, well, what's money got to do with that? Well, money is the number one stressor globally. It's the second leading cause of divorce globally behind uh, adultery. So you start to realize that if money is the number one cause of stress globally, and we know that stress directly impacts the like childbirth and the child's ability to a healthy life, then money is indirectly impacting even our health of our nation. See, it's, it's impacting the bonds that we have with our children, which I think is fascinating.
1: Totally. And so if you think about, you know, you were talking earlier about government's ability to actually make a difference and improve things. The best thing they could do for us is allow us to participate in a monetary system where the money retains its value so that we can fix our our home lives ourselves rather than uh, needing further assistance and state handouts to make it happen, right? Like, yeah, fix, fixing the money would
0: fix a lot. And you also said, like, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that what's also fascinating is that as you see the breakdown of currency, you also see the rise of socialism and socialist agendas, whereby people are stepping in and saying, well, we've got to fix this and we've got to do this and we've got to do this. And what we've noticed over the last, say, 70, 80 years is we've seen a breakdown of currency through the fiat standard, is we've seen a breakdown of respect towards elderly people. People are just being left to kind of in the dust, like left in the dust. They're going to elderly homes. We don't have that same family unit we once had. We're seeing The breakdown of care towards those who need it, because ultimately it's being taken away from families because they no longer have the time because our money is worth less. And it's being put into the hands of the state who don't have the resources, nor do they have the skill and the understanding about how to care for this stuff. And so again, like it's money's like it's arms spread into everything.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's this time is finite and when the money is infinite, like as, as your money just becomes infinitely worth less it's going to take only more and more of your time to do whatever it is that requires money right yeah it's a good thing we have a we, we got that we got this cool thing called Bitcoin seb you're you're a really uh passionate uh, Bitcoin educator and I want to talk a little bit about looking glass tell us about looking glass
0: I would say like well, I'll step back for a second before I dive into looking glass and kind of it'll make more sense as to how it's founded so I was a Backcountry mountain bike instructor. And uh, I live here at Whistler in British Columbia in Canada. And so I've been teaching mountain biking for a long time. I've been spending time in the mountains. And I do this because I love being with people and living vicariously through them as they grow and they take on skills and, and develop and, as an individual. And what I found is that I did this for about 10 years and I loved it. But I started to realize I was just like, man, one, my body was breaking down after riding 100 plus days a year when these were shot. But then on top of that, I started to feel like, ah, I had this passion for throughout all of my mountain biking career, I was always digging into macroeconomics and finances. And so I always had this passion for kind of teaching my friends about the financial world. And so when the pandemic hit, I was just like, you know what? I don't have any work right now. I'm going to step back and I want to start educating people about what I think is important. And that is how our money is kind of dominating our society. And so I started, I wrote this one article called When More Isn't Better, Inflation in the 21st Century. And I think I had 11 followers at the time on Twitter, I had none. And so I just posted this article and one of the influencers in the space picked it up and shared it. And from there, it kind of springboarded. I met a few other like-minded individuals who liked speaking to the layman. And I should say that I like to be able to, there's so many other individuals out there that speak very philosophically or are more from the financial realm. I like to break things down for the layman so that the average individual can understand what we're facing. And so I met a few like-minded individuals and we started talking and from that we started looking glass education. And so looking glass education is essentially, it's a a media platform for education which uh, breaks down the complex subjects around Bitcoin, macroeconomics and finance, financial literacy, and it kind of digests them into bite-sized pieces or courses that are all for the layman and for the working class individual to try and help them get ahead. And the majority Uh, pretty much all of our content, other than a book at the moment is, is free and accessible to anyone because we don't want to impede people's learning journey. And then we've also broadened and expanded out a few little things. We have our educational component, and then we also do something called coddle. And so coddle is basically, we do self custody because when it comes to Bitcoin, for those that are new to Bitcoin, it can be daunting taking ownership of your Bitcoin and getting it on off exchanges, which is obviously what we recommend. And so we support people through that journey. And so if you ever have any questions, feel free to reach out and we can help you through that.
1: Yeah. The custody piece is huge. I've I've mentioned this a few times before. Um, it's a very weird idea and understandably, uh, scary. Um, we don't typically possess our own money and it's a feature. It's not a bug. You want to, you want to be in control of your own money. Um, but it is very different. Everyone, we, we've delegated that service to banks for all of our entire lives prior to Bitcoin. So yeah, L- Looking Glass, um, I was thrilled when I, when I got to meet Seb and when I connected the dots on who he was because uh, early in my uh, Bitcoin uh, learning, I was using the website a lot. Look- Looking Glass is a really, really top shelf, especially as the content's free. I just, I'm, I'm going to really plug it. I think that uh, if, you're, if you're interested and you're listening and you want to find a resource, um, the other cool thing about, that I like about you guys' site is it's interactive. So there, you have some quizzes in there and then there's courses, right? So you can, uh, for people, it's not just static reading. And I, I haven't seen anywhere else that's doing quite as good a job as you guys. So yeah, great contribution.
0: We try. It's, it's one of those things like we always, we wish, we wish we could do more and there's so many avenues which we want to take it. And what we've found Recently is we tend to we spend a lot of time writing these courses and we've got a few different courses now ranging from macroeconomics to a Bitcoin specific course we even have some courses that others have kindly uh, allowed us to host on our website. We have one by a lady called Carrie and her background is um, business consulting and presentations and so if you work for a company or you you yourself want to educate and improve your ability to present and educate, this course is phenomenal and so uh, Feel free to jump on and check out our courses. And then, many times as well, if you are more of the reader, uh, the physical book in hand reader, we convert our courses into books. So you can either just get the free course online or you can get the physical book. And uh, so we have a course called Beers for Bitcoin. And that one we're just about to release uh, for free, but the book has been out for a couple of months now. And that um, Beers for Bitcoin is basically a holistic look at Bitcoin. So, how Bitcoin works, how it functions, who is the founder of Bitcoin, uh, how to kind of get involved in the Bitcoin community and, and whatnot. And it's very much, again, speaking to the layman. And then I should also say one more thing, which is like I've been working on all of the subjects that we've discussed throughout this podcast. I've been working on a book for the last year, tying together all of these things we've discussed, and it's called The Hidden Cost of Money. And it's basically how these financial forces shape our lives and shape the world around us and how money kind of weaves its influence into our social sphere, our economic sphere, our environmental spheres and whatnot. And so that should be out and about like I would say a month and a half, two months. And so I'm pumped to get that out there because again, I don't think people realize how profoundly impactful money is into every area of our lives.
1: I agree with you 100%. And yeah, it's one its one of the things that I think often causes people who start learning about it to really kind of tumble down the Bitcoin rabbit hole because it's like this for a lot of people as we, we just haven't really had the time or the energy to stop and think about the, the root cause of why we don't have the time. And yeah, well, I'm looking forward to reading that. So, you know, from an educator standpoint, for people who are setting out to get their head wrapped around this big topic, where do you, you recommend people get started
0: you know what before even looking at the content side of things well obviously most people listening to this are probably already down the the content rabbit hole and they're already reading what i would say and actually the first time we met scott i did a little presentation called we are all satoshi and so in the bitcoin world there's a meme called we are all satoshi and for so for those that maybe are not familiar satoshi is the uh the anonymous creator of bitcoin so no one actually knows who he is whether it's a guy a girl a group of uh, people But what I think is so fascinating is that he ultimately handed Bitcoin to the community. And so when it says we are all Satoshi, it's kind of this meme or this reference that ultimately the success of Bitcoin is in the hands of us as the individuals. There's no marketing department. There's no group of people that control Bitcoin. And so I tend to think about Bitcoin as be your authentic self. We all look at Bitcoin uniquely. We all have different backgrounds, whether you're a dentist, a man and bike instructor like myself, whether you've worked in finance like Scott, uh, all of us have different backgrounds. And I think it is so important to speak to your authentic self because you will speak to certain individuals. If you're simply trying to parrot someone else's words, then your local community won't necessarily relate to you. So I think it's so important to put yourself out there and speak to it as much as you know. And naturally, you'll, I don't know, for me, I I stood and watched the Bitcoin community for a couple of years and I was petrified about saying anything. For a few years, I never said a single word. No one knew who I was. And it wasn't until I just put myself out there as a mountain bike instructor but I started to find my crowd. And so I highly, highly recommend that uh, be your authentic self and put yourself out there and speak to Bitcoin in however you view it because we all have our own unique experiences with money, unique experiences with Bitcoin and whatnot.
1: Do you remember a moment when you first kind of like made sense of the idea? Like, how did it happen for you? Okay, well, you
0: know what? I would say there's on Daniel Prince's podcast, which is called Once Bitten, Phenomenal Podcast, he talks about, I think it's him who talks about it. Well, at least we spoke about it afterwards. We get these pre-Bitcoin moments when we kind of, this is when we get kind of hooked on Bitcoin and it can even be before Bitcoin was even founded. And so for me, I was like nine years old. I think I was nine or 10 years old and I'd saved up for a scooter and I'd save for the scooter for, I would say like three, four months. And so at that time, like three, four months felt like a lifetime. I'd save for the scooter and we went down to the toy store to go buy the scooter with my dad and my two brothers. We get down to the toy store, I pick out the scooter, we go up to the front desk. And as I go to pay for the scooter, my dad says, I feel bad that you're getting a scooter and your brothers aren't. So he ends up buying two scooters for my brothers and I had to pay for mine out of my pocket money. And in this moment, I was just like, oh my God, like life is so unfair. And what's interesting is in the financial world, there's something called the Cantillon effect. And the Cantillon effect is those who are closest to the money uh, printer benefit disproportionately. And so... This is kind of on a little microcosm level. Those closest to my dad, which was my two brothers, rather than my, me, they were benefiting disproportionately. So I learned to realize that our monetary system is unfair. And I think that ultimately, rather than that leading to me finding my way down Bitcoin, I would say that that was one of those, spark, those moments when I started to question the world around me, start to question what, like how our monetary system functioned and whatnot. And so I, I always think it's interesting. But that wasn't necessarily a Bitcoin one. I would say the Bitcoin one, it's what a lot of people talk about like the three touches. Like you hear about Bitcoin three times before you actually go down the rabbit hole. And I would say I heard about it. My brother used to purchase weed on the Silk Road. And then another brother decided to, he said he wanted to invest in it. But then I told him not to because I was a Warren Buffett enthusiast and Bitcoin had no cash flows. So naturally it could, it's worthless. So I told him not to invest in it. And then it wasn't until about four, I think it was about four years ago, four and a bit. I, I started watching a ton of documentaries on it. So there wasn't a specific moment, but it's all of these moments combined kind of started to open my eyes. And then so for the last three or four years, I've been, all of my energy has been dedicated to Bitcoin wholeheartedly. And I, and I feel comfortable saying that I think the rest of my life will be dedicated to Bitcoin because it's, I truly believe that the issues, as I mentioned earlier, everything is downstream of money and we can spend our money on the environmental issues. We can, sp- oh, sorry, we can spend our time when energy on the environmental issues, we can spend our time and energy on the family issues. We can spend our time and energy on the political or the business issues. But ultimately, I think all of these issues have the same root cause. And so I would rather direct my energy towards the root cause, which is our money. And if we can fix the money, I think we're going to go a long way towards fixing a lot of the problems we have in society.
1: Couldn't agree, Mark. You know, and to, I don't think I, I got there in my own ramblings. If you go back to the analogy of appliances, the environmental impact becomes a lot more obvious the connection of the problem because if you all of a sudden have to replace your refrigerator every five years instead of every 20, we're creating a lot more process and waste. And so the, the impact of higher consumption, now that's something that does make sense in the context of infinite money that becomes worth less over time. So in a money, in a finite money world, the onus is on the producer to compete based on producing something really good. So in a, if money's appreciating in value over time, you're going to want to trade it for things that are really worth it. And so that now all of a sudden refrigerator manufacturers are going to be competing based on who can make the fridge that's going to last the longest, because those are going to be the ones that people decide to spend their valuable money on. And now all of a sudden you, you have an entire reversal of the way our consumer economy works. And if you think about how that could change everything so you mentioned it yeah i mean with environment is this such an obvious thing to me i mean we have so much waste in consumption packaging all this stuff that is the result of uh you know even like we look at the way buildings you know like you go down uh you know buildings used to be built in europe to be to last for hundreds or a thousand years and the buildings the glass boxes we're building today like If we all cease to exist tomorrow, the only buildings that would be left in Europe in a thousand years would be the ones that are already a
0: thousand years old. And that, that is broken money. Totally. And you know what? There's a, there's a book called sacred economics by a guy called Charles Eisenstein. And although I don't necessarily agree with the conclusion of the book, he adds some really good points. And one of the points that was, I I truly believe was so profound is that when you have a debt based system that is focused on growing GDP. And GDP, for obviously those that aren't familiar, GDP is gross domestic product. And you can think of it as kind of the productive capacity of an economy, all of the transactions that take place in a year. Now, what's interesting is when you have an economy that is debt-based, naturally, you have to devalue the currency over time or else that debt is going to quickly overwhelm. Not only that, when you have an economy that is trying to constantly grow GDP, what ends up happening is if I make something for free, like through Looking Glass, if I make a free course that free course is not measured underneath GDP, and so it doesn't offer any value to those in positions of power. It doesn't offer any value to the central bank that's trying to grow GDP. So ultimately, what ends up happening in a society that's targeting devaluation of currency and GDP, they're trying to turn every transaction into a monetary transaction. And so many things that used to be free, or many things that were just like a natural, uh, available in our environment, are now becoming paid for because they they were no longer they didn't w- used to be measured under GDP, and now they we want them to be measured under GDP in order to continue to grow GDP. Another example of that is say parks passes, like here in Canada, it's a forest. We have to pay to go walk through our own forests because previously there was no monetary transaction that took place for us to walk through our forests. Now you've got to pay 100 hundred, two hundred $200 a year in order to be able to just walk through our national parks. And then you see it also in traditionally, you'd have a lot of community events where the community would host stuff to get people together. And now instead you have Netflix, you have all of these kind of, uh, media companies that are trying to capitalize off this, these community events. And, uh, ultimately what we start to see is in a debt-based world, we're trying to increase transactions. We're trying to increase spending and increase GDP. We're naturally trying to monetize everything. We're trying to monetize what traditionally would not have been a monetary transaction.
1: Yeah. I mean, we are financializing everything right now, and this is another sort of like late stage. Yeah, money thing, but uh, you know, we're, we've turned houses into hotels, we've turned cars into taxis. Everything is becoming. Uh, we we don't even just own stuff anymore. Now the things you own also have to become a business, and this is this is the result of uh, money that just cannot hold its worth. Couldn't agree more. Kind of getting back to the, the for people, your experience as an educator, like, what's your favorite place to start when people ask you about Bitcoin and knowing it's such a big idea?
0: I would say that first off, learning is we have our own preferences. And so like in in teaching, I currently work a couple of days a week in the school district and you start to really see how different children, different teachers, everyone has their own preference or modality, whether it's kinesthetic they have to do, whether it's visual they have to see, whether it's uh, um, vocal they have to like speak and, and preach and whatnot. And so I think what's really interesting is first to identify how we learn Ourselves. So for me personally, I've never been a good reader. I am useless at reading, and but what I found is that audible and listening has just been truly, truly profound. And so, although I would love to plug something like Looking Glass and say, hey, go and look at Looking Glass, go to use all of our content. The reality is, we recognise that it's not going to work for everyone. We have a lot of stuff on macroeconomics, Bitcoin, and financial literacy. And if you want to go check us out, we're more than happy to help out in any way you need. And if you have ever have any questions, feel free to let us know. But what I would say is find content that resonates with you, uh, find content that is in in your language. And what I mean is not necessarily in English or Spanish or whatever. Find content that speaks to you and resonates with you in a way that you can understand that it excites you to want to learn more. Because ultimately, we learn when we are energized. We learn when we're interested. And so if you're just consuming for the sake of consumption, you're not going to remember. And so instead, find people that talk to you in a way that it resonates with you, because that's how you're going to learn more effectively. Yeah, and there really is
1: within the space, there's Bitcoin people that are kind of the, the hardcore uh, economics and uh, students of debt and uh, capital cycles. And there are more of the people who are interested in the, the philosophy and the the esoterics of. Bitcoin and culture and society, like we talked about uh, earlier in some of the conversation. So, yeah, as you as you explore the uh, the community more, it, it, I think it is you can there is something for everybody for sure.
0: How would you say, Scott? How would you say you learn?
1: Yeah, I like to read. So I'm always on the lookout for stuff to, to read. And, um, yeah, that, that was one book became two and two became four. And that, that's, that was my story with Bitcoin. I, um, I got into Bitcoin during the lockdown period in the spring of 2020. And after a few nights at Netflix decided that I was going to be productive with my time instead. And, uh, I read Jeff Booth's book, the price of tomorrow, which is an awesome intro to Bitcoin because it's not actually even a Bitcoin book. He's just a very smart guy who understands innovation and what technology means generally in society. And uh, but that book did inspire me to read other Bitcoin books, a bunch of them. And I, I like a little bit of everything. I, there's like there's a there's a long list of other people I hope to have on here one day talking about this stuff. You're, you're a fan of Jeff. I know I know you've uh, you've talked about him here and there. I love your uh, analogy about Blockbuster Video. So for the listeners, Jeff's thesis and price of tomorrow is that, generally speaking, technology drives down the cost of production. And so we, what we should be experiencing is the price of everything coming down over time. And so a good example of this, because it's worked, are big screen TVs. In the 90s, a big screen TV was like $4,000 of, of real money at that time, which would be like, I don't know, $10,000 today. And today you can get a big screen TV for like 600 bucks. So that's true for that one thing, but it's definitely not true for everything. And, but the, but we are seeing, uh, you know, AI and improvements in, uh, machining, it should be reducing the, the price of everything. And so, yeah, what, t- talk to me a little bit about price of tomorrow.
0: So I think price tomorrow again, like that, similar to what you said, price tomorrow was a big turning point for me because it made you look at the world differently when you start realizing that technology is always trying to get more for less. In every single instance, no matter where it is that you look, technology is always trying to get more for less. And so you mentioned about the Netflix and Blockbuster example, which I love to give, which is when it comes to, say, Blockbuster, if you think about it, to be able to watch a movie, you used to have to spend time and energy and gas driving down to Blockbuster. Then you spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes browsing the Blockbuster, picking a movie out, and then you spend your seven bucks or whatever to rent the movie, and then you drive home, you watch the movie, you then have to drive back to Blockbuster, drop off the movie, drive back home. By the time you've actually watched the movie, you've spent countless hours driving back and forth, all of the, the time in between, all of the energy and the gasoline to drive back and forth. It's very inefficient when we look at, say, Netflix now, where you spend, I don't know what it is, five, six bucks a month, and you can get thousands of movies basically at the touch of a button without ever having to leave your couch. And then you can also see the same thing in, say, LED light bulbs versus traditional halogen light bulbs. Like the old halogen light bulb used to get a couple hundred like couple hundred hours and was two, three times the price of an LED light bulb. And now an LED light bulb is far cheaper and you're getting thousands of hours. And so technology is always trying to get more for less. But then you've got to ask yourself the question, if technology is always driving down prices, then why are we seeing prices rising? And that's ultimately because our money is worth less over time. So we're no longer, these benefits are not being passed on to the consumer. And so in a world, this is where throughout this whole conversation, we keep referencing that Bitcoin's price would increase over time if we had a fixed denomination of, or a fixed amount of units. So in the case of Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million. So that means that as technology advances, as the productive capacity of society grows, naturally, prices are going to fall rather than rise. And so this is his thesis in the price of tomorrow. And when you start to grasp this, it's profound because you realize the world is backwards right now. The world is not working in the way that it should and what's also interesting is when you think about inflation let's say they're targeting 2 to 3% inflation let's just say it is 2% inflation and not the 5 or 6 that we're experiencing right now even at 2% inflation it's not really 2% inflation because if technology is prices should be declining at let's say 10% a year if prices are declining at 10% a year and inflation is 2% that means that we're not starting from the zero bound we're starting from negative 10 which means inflation is actually 12% And so when you think about 12% inflation means that like, well, I know that 10% inflation, we've basically lost 60% of our purchasing power over 10 years. Like that's mind blowing. And so I think that's where people don't necessarily realize how quick we're losing our purchasing power when we're experiencing inflation rates of five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10%, 12%. And on top of that, inflation is far greater than the metrics like CPI actually let on because they don't account for the actual decline in, 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 um, and prices rather than uh, constant zero bound.
1: Yeah, and what's, what's really interesting about that idea is technology is, uh, this is Jeff's concept, but technology is going to get increasingly deflationary. Like AI is going to get better. Robots are going to get better. So the downward pressure on prices should be increasing and becoming stronger. And it's just totally set in opposition of a system that requires things to go up. And it comes back to what we talked about at the very start is when governments are the ones responsible for creating an infinite amount of money, it's a tool that they use to devalue the debt that they've already accumulated. And so this is like the unstoppable force and the, amuse- and the immovable object. It's like uh, there's, a, there's a, an inevitable collision happening between two systems that are incongruent and they don't work together because they're just fundamentally headed in opposite directions.
0: But no, I agree more. And it's one of those things like an inflationary system in order to continue to function, debt is going to have to grow exponentially. And so it's going to have to continually consume more and more and more of our time and our purchasing power in order to survive. And so this is where we're not benefiting from the deflationary forces of technology. We're not benefiting from the productive capacity improvements of society. Whereas on a world built around Bitcoin, we would very much benefit from these things.
1: Yeah. And so for, for people who are listening and still skeptical, like the, the thought about Bitcoin if you want to think about it as it's priced in dollars or U.S. dollars, or pounds, whatever money, if you believe that the amount of money, if the current system is going to go on forever and the amount of money that's available is going to go on forever, then Bitcoin's probably just a good bet to go up in price forever because there's then going to be an infinite, an, a never ending, and an amount of money that never ceases to expand chasing a purely finite amount of Bitcoin. And over time, just a growing number of people are going to understand that Bitcoin then offers an opportunity to own the only money in the world that can't be expanded. Or the possibility is that the idea really catches on and people just become less interested in using the money that is designed to steal from you and take your wealth without your consent. And uh, instead, use uh, I just heard this term the other day Bitcoin has user centric monetary principles. So it is designed with the users in mind, which is the reversal of the incentive structure that we've been talking about this whole time.
0: Could not agree more. I think that's an awesome, awesome kind of summary of Bitcoin.
1: Maybe we'll stop there, Seb. We mentioned, uh, we've talked a lot about Looking Glass, but if listeners are interested to find you and find more of you, how would they
0: do that? So you can either go on lookingglasseducation.com or you can find me on Twitter at Seb Bunny, and that's B-U-N-N-E-Y. And then I also have a website called saidbunny.com, which I kind of do a, uh, it was a weekly blog post on kind of everything that's going on in our world. It's called the Chi of self-sovereignty and how to kind of be a more self, well, I'm going off more self-sovereign individual, but it's kind of now moved towards rather than a week. I kind of do it every month or so because I'd rather write when inspiration strikes rather than writing for the sake of writing, which I feel is a very fiat thing to do. You've lowered your writing time preference. Totally. A hundred percent. Cool. Thanks again for coming on, Seb. Thanks a lot, Scott. I really appreciate everything you're doing and looking forward to chatting.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin Forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening.